Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's what I taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect, just do it. You know, throw some spaghetti against the wall. This is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys, part of the Once Upon a Podcast Network. This is George Soroy, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in for over 200 episodes. Still can't believe how far this show has gone. We are not stopping at all. We are still pushing forward. We are still constantly getting bigger, constantly getting better. And with the help of the Once Upon a Podcast Network, it's going to be even bigger than, than expected. This is a, this is a group of 10 shows that is all about inspiring, motivating, celebrating, educating, and even rejuvenating creatives of all kinds. Just go to once upon a podcast network.com to go ahead and subscribe to all the different shows that are available. And I have big news. The, my sister show from duck till dark outside the Marvel studios ha- is officially joining the podcast network. It will be getting the Once Upon a Podcast Network branding and all the episodes from that first, from that original season will be available for download on the network. So it's very, very exciting. And we are officially kind of opening our doors to more pop culture based, nostalgia based. Uh, shows. So if you have something like that, please reach out to us. We would love to hear your pitch and maybe you can be a part of the network as well. And speaking of networks, one of the things that really, that really was a positive in my life was when, when a friend and fellow author, KM Robinson gave me an invite to join Clubhouse because it was through Clubhouse. That's when I discovered the 529 Club Creatives. And it's from the 529 Club Creatives that led me on from discovering them. It's what led me on the path to eventually getting my. I guess you can say magnum opus, Excelsior, the audio journey produced and available. You could actually hear the whole thing for yourself on the audio drama Sunday theater podcast, which is again, part of the once upon a podcast network. And one of the one, one person that, that I was really excited to hear from when it, when the show was completed and out there was Mark Redfield because Mark has proven himself to be a true authority when it comes to the art of audio dramas. But he's also one of the most prolific creatives that I have I have, have had the pleasure of meeting because Mark is also a filmmaker. He is an author. He is a podcaster himself. He has so many, so many irons in, in his fire going and that fire is burning brighter and brighter than ever these days. And I am just so excited to not only have him on here to discuss everything that he's been working on, but also to discuss the audio drama art itself and the sort of comeback that it's making through podcasting and a look back at one of the most really one of the true landmarks in all of in all of communications history. And that is the the 1938 broadcast of Orson Welles's War of the Worlds. And 
this is such a landmark time for that because not only are the audio dramas really making a comeback, thanks to podcasting and thanks to the BBC really keeping the art form alive, but this is also the 85th anniversary of this event. This month, it happened on in late October of 1938, and I am so excited to have Mark here to kind of look back at that time at at such a at such a landmark period in our history. So with all that and more, it is my pleasure to introduce Mark Redfield. Mark, how are you, sir? Oh, I am great and always a pleasure to talk to you, George. As 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 is mine. And the great thing is is that recently Mark had put out put out a some news about a screening that was that was going to be taking place. Actually took place just earlier this month. It was an anniversary screening of his film, The Death of Poe. And when I saw that, that, that ad, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I know that I have that. And the reason why I, I went over to my collection and everything and I was so excited about it is because it turns out Mark and I met briefly at a monster bash convention in Pennsylvania back in 2008, in June of 2008. And that was such a landmark period for me because that was also the month that I wrote the first draft of Excelsior itself. And the, this was the first draft of the book. And I had done the, the June version of the national, of national novel writing month. I couldn't do it in November, but I had to do it with. 30 days and June seemed like an ideal month. And even with this event, I took my laptop with me and I was still able to get all of my goals done and complete that first draft by June 30th of that year. And, but that weekend was a lot of fun because I got to meet with Chad Webb, Wilhelm and Leonard Hayhurst, who are also writers with me on 411mania.com. And so this, that was a, that was a really, really fun weekend. And who knew that a highlight would be discovering this movie that I hadn't heard of until I saw that movie at on sale at the convention. And I was so intrigued by it. I went ahead and got it and I wound up watching it not, not so long after wound up really enjoying it and recently rediscovered it went and rewatched it. And yeah, very well-made film. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much. I, small world, isn't it? Yeah, the Monster Bash is Ron Adams' wonderful show up in Mars, Pennsylvania, and yeah. classic horror is its is is the main thing for that convention. Mm-hmm. It draws a lot of uh, people. <clears throat> I may have come across Leonard even uh, earlier <clears throat> through a thing called the Classic Horror Film Board on the internet. It began as an AOL chat thing. I, I believe I recognize that name from way back in those days. Yeah. But uh, yeah, funny. Did you? And I'm curious if you picked up the three disc Death of Poe set or the the single disc set by 2008. I believe it was a two disc. <clears throat> yeah. I believe. Yeah. It was. It was a two disc one that I got. It had some behind the scenes footage on disc two. And I believe there's, if I'm not mistaken, there's a commentary track on disc one, correct? There, there is when, when the, the death of Poe came out on DVD (coughs) very quickly after it was, we, we premiered it in Manchester, England at the festival of fantastic films. It then had its Baltimore premiere Mm -hmm. that fall of 2006 at the Charles theater. And then by December, I think it was on DVD. Wow. And there was a disc with two silent films 
that where one of them was made by D.W. Griffith. I did an audio commentary. We 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 did the the music soundtrack for those, and then nice. there was a CD on it that had me reading some Poe poetry and and things. And uh, yeah, it that sort of launched my Erzatz Poe scholar career. Mm-hmm. And I can't escape Poe to this day. There have been so many projects since then. The screening, as you mentioned, its 17th anniversary that happened earlier in October. Mm-hmm. We are working on, uh, God, forgive me. We're working mm-hmm. on a 10-hour biography of Poe, which is wow. full audio drama. Really? A huge cast. It It had some fits and starts because of the size of the cast. Mm-hmm. You would, you would, in the early leg of COVID, within the first year, it made it difficult for certain actors that were cast, uh, people who had been in horror films, uh, hammer horror films and things. It made it difficult to get them into studios because they were not able to necessarily record cleanly at home. Mm. Uh, so we hope to finish that by 2025. I have, we'll talk about this later, all things Poe, but I have this wonderful little cameo in the Netflix limited series, The Fall of the House of Usher. Really? Um, Yeah. I'll put a seed down by saying I bury half of the Usher family in the series in episodes one, one, five, and eight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. That is so cool. And, and, Wow. So, and it sounds like when you say you can't escape, it doesn't sound like any sort of regret with that. It oh, there's like, no, there's no pain. Yeah. It, it, it surprises me. In a nutshell, here's how the death of Poe came about it. I had made a few independent features and I had a, I have a really wonderful script adaptation feature length mm-hmm. of Poe's The Telltale Heart. I, I, I looked around to see what Roger Corman had not done. Mm-hmm. And so we came up with this really wonderful script, which sets it a week after Lincoln's assassination. Mm. And it's set in a boarding house and, and people trying to flee Richmond. It's, it's run by this old woman whose wife is in uh, the, the, the guy with the eye in Poe's story. Mm-hmm. And I had cast the thing. I tried to launch it twice. And the second time I had launched it, I had two wonderful friends in it. Fellow named Robert Quarry, mm-hmm. who his claim to fame, an actor for many many years, but in the seventies he was Count Yorga Vampire, and did some horror films. He did he did the sequel to The Abominable Doctor Fibes with Vincent Price, and Ingrid Pitt, who was a star of Hammer horror films of the late sixties and seventies. She's in she's in the Clint Eastwood film Where Eagles Dare, and mm. <clears throat> so. And th- they were the couple who ran the boarding house. Debbie Rashawn was. <coughs> And essentially, I'll just cut to the chase. The Mm -hmm. investor had a stroke. Mm. And his daughter really wanted to continue on. But it just, let's just say that that was the right thing to do was just to move in. Well, eventually, Bob Quarry died. Mm. And Ingrid, bless her soul. I'm on the East Coast United (laughs) States. She she was in London. She has since passed away. She Mm -hmm. would call me at the oddest times, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning saying, <laughs> darling, I, I, I have a new actor in mind. Aww. She wanted to do this thing so badly. And we, I couldn't get it back on its feet. She eventually passed away. I yeah. shelved the thing. 
I would like to do it one day, even if I just direct, but I'm getting old enough now to play the old man with the eyes. (laughs) (laughs) But, but this always been familiar with Bo. I I read the stories, read poems, always enjoyed them, but somehow something made me look at his life. Mm -hmm. And there was, and there is to this day and forever, the mystery of how he died, what killed him. Hmm. And so I was looking into that. I read everything I could get my hands on at the time. I talked to a couple of Poe scholars, and I was in a a small studio space. It was my second studio. Realized that I really didn't, I I wanted to do this badly. I wanted to do this in in a particular but let's just say I wanted to do this in sort of a poor man's David Lynch <laughs> style. <laughs> I wanted to do something that felt like was expressionistic and very dreamlike. Mm-hmm. And so I just barreled ahead. It was made for the price of a used car. Mm-hmm. Back in most of it is shot on sets in our studio. There yes. is some location work. Wonderful actors I had worked with before. Mm-hmm. We we had in our costume collection, we, we really didn't have to build anything uh, for it, <clears throat> pardon me, to make it work mm-hmm. in, the, in the vision I had and the lack of money that we had. <coughs> and it was shot in a, a fat two-week period in about 12 days. Mm. And like I said, the, the, we, we were in post-production relatively quickly, had already had a deal with a, a distributor at the time. Yeah. So from its festivals to its premiere to dvd release in december of 2006 all worked really quickly and it is on our youtube channel so if you'd like to look at it for free Mm -hmm. it's it's over there youtube at mark redfield studios excellent that's great and now i remember there was another movie that you were that you were selling at the at the same table that that's approaching an anniversary correct that was cold harbor Pardon me. Yeah, this is a very, this is a very, very important film to me. It, Cold Harbor is my first film, independent film as a producer. Mm -hmm. And it was written and directed by Tom Brandau, who was my best friend. We had met in college. I was majoring in theater and, and minoring in film, and he was majoring in film at Towson University. Oh, wow. And, and we actually met during, doing a play that uh, a mutual friend, Belinda Blair, wrote and directed. And, um, it it had a sequence in it. I, I it was a very it was a very bizarre play she wrote called Mutants. And at one point, as the master of ceremonies of this play or uh, the catalyst, the whole thing that kicks it off, mm-hmm. is I seemingly pull the stranger from the audience and I show him the his life and the and uh, put him through hell basically for about eighty minutes. And there was a sequence where, and I, and I, my MC is very corpse-like, by the way. And this is in the early, <laughs> this is in the early eighties. Yeah. A very strange uh, play she wrote. And, um, at one point, uh, I, ch- I start to chase him and I chase him off stage. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this thing, multimedia thing where I'm a, a film of us chasing each other appears. And basically we are chasing each other from on stage to onto the film screen. Oh, wow. Very low tech Looney Tunes, Buster Keaton kind of thing. And back and maybe the sequence lasted less than two minutes, but mm-hmm. that's where Tom and I connect in college. We become great friends. Years later, I go into a, a, a Fox TV affiliate for a, to audition for a commercial. Yeah. And lo and behold, there's Tom, Tom Brandau, and we get to talking and 
he says to me that he's, well, the same thing. Old Lang Syne, what have you been up to? Well, I've got this uh, feature film script about, well, it's about the stuff that happened to me when I was 18, when my dad committed suicide. And Oof. and he asked me what I was up to. And I, and I said, well, I truly have been trying to get this thing called the Telltale Heart off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so we began to talk. And you talk about networking. You talk about meeting the wonderful people that we've mutually met uh, on Clubhouse, for instance. Yeah. I looked at the script and he asked me to produce. And in Tom's life, he had decided to, he, he hadn't quite figured out, but he quit working at, at this Fox TV station. Mm-hmm. He packed up his truck. He drove across the country to New Mexico to meet with friends he hadn't seen in a long time. He just wanted to think about things, get things out of his system. He then drove to Alaska in mm-hmm. this little white pickup truck. And he called me from a phone booth in Alaska. And he said, Mark, this is it. I'm going to tell you. When we come back, we're going to make Cold Harbor. And I said, Tom, think about this. We have the, mi- the money right now to shoot it. But if you still want to do this when you come back, of course, I'll say yes. But know that post-production is going to take a little bit longer. Because yeah. we we did everything wrong on Cold Harbor. We used our own money mm-hmm. for one thing. Yeah. So he came back. We then spent several months looking at and george i'm not kidding you we looked at the story is very simple it is based on his life but when we began collaborating on the script my whole plan to work within tom's sandbox with the story was just to make sure that it would work for an audience who knew they did not need to know anything autobiographical any kind of autobiographical about this they it just needed to work as this little gentle story about these four brothers clashing mm-hmm. uh, over over their dad and the shock of all of that. So he came back. We then spent three or four months. I'm not kidding you. From from Cape May, New Jersey, through Delaware, through Maryland's eastern shore, Ocean City, Maryland, right to the tip of the of Southern Maryland, we looked at every beachfront property. Mm. for the main location, the house that the father was <coughs> in. We're mm-hmm. looking at locations. We've been working on the script. We found everything, most everything in Rehoboth, Delaware. So it's funny you should say Rehoboth, Delaware real quick, because one of the, one of the usual things that my, that my family and I would do during the summer, because my grandparents had a summer home over by Bethany Beach, Delaware. And... Uh-huh. So um, that summer home is now actually uh, is fully full time occupied by my sister and her family. But Rehoboth Beach was a constant place for us to go during during the summertime. They had that great amusement park that's over on the boardwalk. And we would that was that was my childhood right there. Like, so it's funny that 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 was that was part of that was part of what you were doing. While I was going on <laughs> on the same ride, so like we were probably walking the same boardwalk and didn't even know it. Who knew? <laughs> uh, oh, absolutely! Oh, my God, again, uh, just a very very small world. <laughs> so, as of September of 2023, Cold Harbor hits its 20th anniversary. Yeah, that I invite viewers again to look at the film for free. We put it up on our YouTube channel, mm-hmm. which is again at Mark Redfield Studios, and. So to pick up the thread and interrupt me at any time, because the film, like I said, is very important to me. Mm-hmm. It's my first as a feature. We actually shot on film. 
Um, so many people in the Rehoboth area opened their uh, arms to us. We wanted to shoot before the tourist season. Mm-hmm. We hooked up with, and I'm sure from all of the time that you've spent there, you've seen all of the billboards, Lingo Realty there. <clears throat> so Bryce Lingo was very helpful in securing that house that we found oh, wow. uh, for the main picture house, the, a second house a couple of blocks away that was where we housed people made deals with hotels to put up cast and crew. And when I said we did it, with Tom and I did everything wrong. When you when you make an independent film, you're supposed to create a checklist of everything you've got within arm's reach that's free. Yeah. And so here we're shooting in a completely other state. We've got a house at any given time, 8 to 18 cast and crew. Mm-hmm. Everyone's coming. We made a deal with the Yahtzee, with, with the unions. And we even had to, in the script, it called for the, the boys to give their dad a kind of Viking funeral and burn a boat. So we even burned a boat in the thing. And so, and we managed to do that. I found a boat for $200. $200? Uh, $200. I mean, it's a small boat. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little fishing boat. <laughs> it's not a yacht or a thing. Yeah. And we had a great effects guy, Doug Retzler, who, who rigged the thing with gas tanks. And the boys kind of throw these objects into it, pour gasoline over it, set it on fire and push it out into the Atlantic. And the, 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 the story about the boat real quick is that it survived, of course, the shots and it's mm-hmm. in the, the movie. And I managed to, other than melting the plastic windshield, we, I sold the <laughs> boat to somebody else for $200. So. Great. But the, the day we shot the thing, uh, there's so many, so many wonderful stories. It was shot in 18 days, mostly Rehoboth Beach, mm-hmm. a little bit in Broadkill. There's a convenience store people might recognize if they know the area. Long story short, it really was what bonded Tom and I. It's such an important film to me because it's my first as a feature. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you a quick story about burning the boat. So most of us were out there. We're insured. We have Marine Patrol who is towing this little boat out primarily so it, it doesn't drift out into the water on fire right. and and we can keep it parallel because we want shots from behind the boys on the beach with the boat in the background burning and so doug retzler our effects guy he gets on a, a scuba suit a wetsuit Mm-hmm. He's out in the water, and we shot this actually in the bay and not actually on the Atlantic because who knew, who would know that it's not actually, but the water's a little calmer. Marine patrol can stay out of, out of camera. And so he's behind, he's up stage of, of the camera of the boat and he's paddling like mad to keep the boat steady mm-hmm. and parallel for certain shots, turning the gas tanks on creating the fire and his wife and daughter had come out to, to see the shot being done. And, and all of us who were on location at the time came out for these shots that afternoon, that morning. And, uh, we get them. Everybody's very happy. Our production manager, Kathy Ash, because you're risking on such a low budget, insurance yeah. issues and all kinds of things. Doug comes back. The boat comes back. His wife is relieved. I am so happy that we got it. And she very calmly and casually says, I'm so proud of Doug because he can't swim. Whoa. And the earth almost <laughs> about swallowed me. And I'm glad that our production manager, Kathy, was out of earshot. <laughs> uh, 18-day schedule. I think we shot the boat stuff like in the middle of the schedule when we were doing exteriors. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, 
I really invite you and your listeners to come and take a look at it. Tom Brandau passed away in 2001. Mm-hmm. He eventually taught filmmaking in Minnesota <clears throat> at Moorhead for a great number of years. 2021, and, uh, right? Yeah. And so we just decided as the 20th anniversary came up that just a wider audience, it did its work on the festival circuit back in the day. And it did a run, a nice, healthy run on DVD. And I would just like, for Tom's sake, for people to see it and enjoy it. It's a nice, yeah. quiet little drama. It is so unlike The Death of Poe or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or other films that I've made. Everyone has been a very, very different child. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And so I am, I am really, I've been really impressed with the, with the style of your filmmaking because like you've been able to get a lot out of, out of, out of these, out of these smaller budgets. And it's, it sounds like you've been able to make enough of a return on, the, on an investment to keep on, keep on going with them. Correct. Yeah, pretty much. And boy, I tell you, it is, it is time for some larger budgets and we're, we're working on some things for the future. We have, we have various projects in the wind for the future and, and there is larger budgets attached to them. And, but yeah, it came out of years of Tom and I used to joke when we made Cold Harbor our first, because Tom helped me with the other films that I've made. He's in The Death of Poe. He he worked a, a little bit as a producer and assistant director. He mm-hmm. worked on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with us and some things before he moved to Minnesota. But it came out of, we, we used to joke that we knew too much going into Cold Harbor because mm-hmm. we had come out of years of television. I had run two theater companies, had been an actor in the theater for many years as a producer and a director and mostly as an actor. So there's a, was a lot of experience of, of planning and it really comes down to even as we are about to talk about doing audio drama, which is mm-hmm. incredibly affordable. Yeah. And you can get large production value for, for very little money. Mm-hmm. It really is the planning of these things. And because what is it? Man plans, God laughs or whatever it is. Because no matter yeah. what you do, there's always going to be surprises. There's always going to be something where you're going to have to jump and improvise and make something work, but you, you can't really do that well without the planning. So I, I think that's one of the things on, on these tiny budgets. Cold Harbor, I think by the end cost us maybe Tom and I, because we never got investors. We, we used our money, but between the two of us, I think it cost 150,000. Wow. It was shot on film, which meant we could only work at a certain kind of speed. I mean, we're in Rehoboth. Yeah. Delaware using a, a lab to print and, and get us our work print back, which even in Express UPS was three days before we could look at rushes. Wow. And that, yeah, that was Color Lab in Rockville, Maryland. And we did have video assist. Peter Mullet, the DP, had his son Jojo work as video assist. So Tom could look at takes. And, yeah. and in the script log, we could, we could mark things down there, but you never really know. But in today's age with digital filmmaking and digital video and how good it looks, you can move much faster on the sets. You can, mm-hmm. you can look and you can know what you've got sound and picture wise. Well, sound again, that was the brilliant Dwayne Dell doing our location sound. All of the sound, all of the mm-hmm. dialogue from Cold Harbor was caught on location. There was wow. no ADR, nothing in post. So clean and so good. Very, very happy with how it all worked out technically. That's terrific. 
<coughs> and just like you said, it was in addition to being a filmmaker, in addition to being an author, you're also a podcaster and an audio drama, audio dramatist as well. Yeah. So what is it, what is it about that, that art form that really, that really grabs your attention? Cause I've never seen, I've, I've been, I've been excited about audio dramas, but, but like when I, when I met you and I first started networking with, with you on Clubhouse, first of all, what were your thoughts when, when, when you joined Clubhouse and the 529 Club? Well, it's funny because when I found out about Clubhouse, it's through an actor. It was invitation only at that time. And it was yeah. an actor, Mackenzie Mentor, mm-hmm. who I think by the time this podcast hits, our audio drama adaptation of Eugene O'Neill's Anna Christie will be out on Audible. Mm. And she plays Anna. And I had worked with Mackenzie on, on some audio books and some things. And so she invited me in and I thought... Well, if it's an audio only app, this would be a good thing to learn about podcasting, see what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Podcasting was growing exponentially. COVID, I think people were looking of ways to do things creatively and they were turning to audio. Mm-hmm. And so I did find over the, I guess by the time of this podcast, I almost three years on Clubhouse, I found actors. Mm-hmm. that I've hired some marvelous actors that I didn't know. And I brought them into some audio things that we did. Mm-hmm. So that's basically, I've never run what they call houses. I've, I've yeah. been in rooms and, and networked and met with people and had marvelous conversations about, I love film movies, yeah. obviously. And the, the, the entertainment, the film rooms have just been incredible, incredibly stimulating. Met, met some really wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Audio drama in general. I mean, I grew up in always had an eye. I mean, I started making films, super eight movies when I was a teenager. Oh, very nice. Um, so, so that was always sort of there. As a matter of fact, one of my first films was a hand drawn animation thing. I thought. I was going to be a cartoon animator for a long time or a, or a magician when I was 14. <laughs> but my dad, who's a ceramic artist, a visual artist, he basically said, magicians don't get any respect. What do you want to do that for? And so I, I kept going towards film and, and theater and things. But in the 70s, there was a big resurgence of old time radio. Yeah. There were companies you could go into bookstores everywhere <laughs> and, and you could find on cassette. When I was a kid, there was an AM radio station that at 7.30 every evening ran a different old-time radio show. On a Let's say on a Tuesday night, they ran Amos and Andy. On a Friday night, they ran The Shadow. And so as a teenager, I'm absorbing all of this stuff, and I'm loving the medium, never yeah. thinking that. Because we in the United States sort of abandoned all of this on, on radio. By the mm-hmm. early 70s, it was all gone. Whereas other countries, the BBC has thriving audio drama to this day. Mm-hmm. So as an actor, again, I think my f- one of my first paying gigs was as a voice actor. I was 17 or 18 and a DJ on a radio station we were doing. I met him. We were acting in a production of A Man for All Seasons. Mm. And I was uh, the supporting role of the 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 bad guy was richard rich and he was i think he was the king anyway we were goofing off and i did a really wonderful fozzy bear (laughs) and so he actually slipped me he had me come into the studio and get get completely illegal nothing licensed from henson but slipped me 20 bucks to do a a skit with him as fozzy bear and he is kermit 
<laughs> Throughout my career as an actor, my bread and butter really has been voice work. Yeah. It's narration mm -hmm. on all fronts, narration, audio books, government documentaries and, mm -hmm. and, and training films, commercials, tons of commercials. And then eventually video gaming by the, oh, really? uh, by the early nineties and then, and, and audio books. And so even before really the resurgence of, of radio or audio drama because of podcasting, mm -hmm. I was leaning toward doing that. And <coughs> the, and so this is before COVID, before I, I decided that this would be part of my business mm -hmm. to produce audio books and uh, narrate them yeah. and to do audio drama because why not? It's cheaper than film and I get to act and write and direct and work with marvelous actors. So the first thing that we did was a drama, was a, a, a production called Sinbad and the Pirate Princess. Oh, very nice. That's on Audible. And the reason I picked that, it, the, it stars two Bond girls, two friends of mine, Caroline Monroe and mm -hmm. Martine Beswick. Oh, wow. And, and I had I had the script for Sinbad, and I had another script that had to do with Dracula and vampires. And I and I went to Caroline, who is in Ray Harryhausen's The Golden Voyage of Sinbad from 1974. Mm -hmm. And I said, "This would be fun uh, because of your connection to that, and your audience, your 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 fans might love that." She also did Dracula AD 1972 with Christopher Lee with Hammer Films. Mm -hmm. Or we've got this thing where you would play Mina Harker to my Jonathan Harker, this kind of sequel to Dracula. Either one of these, which would you like to do? She picks Sinbad. Mm -hmm. And between the two of us, we kind of coaxed Martine out of retirement, and she was more than happy to play the bad guy, the villain. Oh, that's great. So we recorded Sinbad, and uh, to make a long story short, we, we put that out without a distributor on our own and on CD, and there was a fella named Steve Henderson who uh, worked for a, an audio distribution company called Oasis. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, is that... <coughs> He had reached out to me about distribution. He said, I would love a big Caroline Monroe fan, and I would love to put your Sinbad out for a wider audience. And I kind of ignored him. I kind of, and then to this day, I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it was sort of like a too good to be true kind of thing. Maybe, maybe. What is that old thing? You put something out and somebody responds. To make a long story short, mm -hmm. a mutual friend of ours, comic book artist and illustrator Mark Wheatley, he was very good friends of, and it turns out that I knew Steve Smith yeah. because he had published a horror magazine, a monster magazine at one point. Oh. So, and I knew it. And but the long story short, <clears throat> Wheatley is saying to me, you got to hook up with my buddy Steve because, and so I did. And it turns out he's running this distribution company for audio mm -hmm. and he's been our distributor ever since. And as far as Wheatley is concerned, uh, he had done some cover art for things that we've done. He did cover art for a haunted house record we produced mm -hmm. for my audio book, uh, my reading of Dickens, a Christmas Carol. <clears throat> and he had this graphic novel called Frankenstein mobster. Mm -hmm. And just casually it was, well, this would make, well, he would make a great animated TV series or a feature film mm -hmm. or, or, or something. And I said, this, this could be a fun audio drama. So we mm. quickly said yes, 
and I adapted Mark Wheatley's Frankenstein Mobster. It runs about two and a half hours, eight chapters. Large cast on that. Yeah. And that cast includes actors that I met on Clubhouse. Nathaniel oh. Gray uh, is one of the detectives. And it's this great, fun mashup <clears throat> of of monsters and mobsters. It's it's uh, this whole fantasy of Monstro City and <clears throat> the, the, the corrupt city government are using mobsters to keep monsters crushed, crushed, and they're really much the underclass. And yeah, this, this detective <clears throat> brought back to life as Frankenstein mobster as Frankie. And so Daniel <laughs> Roebuck is the voice of Frankie. Daniel. Oh, uh, very nice. Yeah. You might know yeah. listeners might know him. Well, working backwards, he's grandpa monster and Rob zombies, the monsters. And he was also uh, Jay Leno in The Late Shift. Uh, and he's brilliant in The Late Shift. Yes. Uh, he, he that, spent that's, years... that's such an underrated film. I, I, oh, that's something I, I really, really enjoyed that. Oh, it really is. And he, he early in his career, we're about the same age, early in his career, he was had a long run on Matlock with Andy mm-hmm. Griffith. And we had, we had done a film together years ago. We'd been friends for a bit. And so I, I asked him, Debbie Rashawn, who is a brilliant actor. I love Debbie. Debbie's mm-hmm. done an enormous amount of, I think she's got over 200 film credits. She's wow. done an enormous amount of work in the independent horror scene. Mm-hmm. Love Debbie to death. She plays Detective Terry Todd, Frankie's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a really, really great cast. Jamie Hill is in it. Who oh, Folks who might know from the breakout indie Skinamarink from 2000. 2023 and as large as the cast is i still this is how big the character list was i still voice 42 characters in this thing. wow now a lot of these are guards in red suits that get bumped off the yeah. bad guys <clears throat> when gangsters and all this kind of stuff and but i am the main bad guy and 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 a couple of other parts so i've met some wonderful actors from clubhouse that are in that that we're working with on some of our future things. I kind of went down a, a strange path there about, but, but I think the, the thing that ignited me many years ago with doing audio drama was I lucked into doing an audio drama for the BBC. Clark Peters, who was on Homicide and on the other David Simon, The Wire. Mm-hmm. We had become friendly. And one day Clark calls me and says, hey, there's this radio show. It's going to record in New York, and I'm wondering if you're free this these dates this week coming up. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, I could make that work. And it turned out to be a BBC Four radio piece called Tradition, mm. and it was based on a novel that took place during Reconstruction in the United States. And the producer and the director of that show for the BBC wanted an American cast. Mm. So what I walked into, what Clark invited me into was a cast that included Felicia Rashad and Carrie Preston. Oh, wow. Carrie, I think, was just... had. I'm mixing some of this up because this was a couple of years ago, but yeah, many years ago, but she had just done The Tempest, I think, off-Broadway or on-Broadway with Patrick Stewart. I couldn't remember. I can't remember. Oh, my. Uh, Her husband, Michael, (coughs) had done Lost. Mm -hmm. So there were some familiar actors in it, and then there were people like me. And then we recorded in New York, and I was asked by the BBC to write a small essay. And it's funny that this, we'll, we'll be talking about Orson Welles in a moment. 
because I remember writing this essay about how we Americans have, have, have sort of lost this tradition of radio drama. Yeah. And, and telling the story about Wells' early days where he would record, oh, I don't know, Campbell Playhouse in one studio, and mm -hmm. the myth goes he would jump into an ambulance to be able to bolt through New York traffic to get to another <laughs> studio to be able to do the shadow. And so it was a marvelous experience. There really wasn't an outlet at that time. There were some guys that approached me. They were trying to do something similar on the radio through the, the, the NPR at the time, years mm -hmm. ago. We did some pilot. I remember recording pilot. But in the meantime, I'm doing narration and, and audio books and, and voiceover work. So cut to Sinbad and there's an outlet for this now. Mm -hmm. You can, you can, you can distribute things on your, on your own. Yep. Through Audible, through others and more and more actors pre COVID who were doing voice work were having building nice little home recording studios. Mm -hmm. the, the price of all of that, the technology rose, the price all came down. And so. About that time, post-making Sinbad and the Pirate Princess, this is fun. I love this medium. Yeah. What's next? And here we are. We, we've done a number of audio dramas. I continue to produce audiobooks. What we've got coming up soon after this, this podcast drops is Eugene O'Neill's Anna Christie, mm -hmm. some new original things, Houdini Magicians in the Ghost World. Mm -hmm. We have some other projects, a, a steampunk teen girl thing that we've written. So I'm keeping them sort of genre mm -hmm. like you are yep. with Excelsior. Yes. I don't think we're doing anything on the docket that's quite out and out science fiction, but we're staying within fantasy. We're staying within horror. We are moving into Westerns in, in the next several months. Fun. I, I find that there is an audience to tap into. We have, through our distributor, we have the opportunity to get uh, CDs mm -hmm. into places like Cracker Barrel. Ah. So, and, and if you notice the kind of uh, work, uh, music, um, I, I, I noticed that they're even selling LPs. They're even selling 33 and a third LPs mm -hmm. at places like that. And so we're trying to <clears throat> kind of what's old is new. Thank yeah. God for things like Audible and dozens of other. We're on so many different platforms around the world. Mm -hmm. A few of our titles are on CD. And so we're, we're still growing and building, getting, getting things out to the public. We're trying to do things that are evergreen, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you recognize with Excelsior that you could listen to it now. You could listen to it 10 years from now and it still holds up. It still works. Yeah. But that's the great thing about staying <coughs> in genres and period pieces and, and things like that. Because if, yeah. And and this is a whole part of the conversation that we'll be getting into. But I've learned so much about telling stories for the ear. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Yeah. I'll never stop learning. But Orson Welles, the Mercury Theater, is still teaching me. The audiences are teaching me the very fact of how commercial television, whether it's network or not, that has taught me a lot, even about audiences' attention spans, mm -hmm. how not to lose them in yeah. increments of time because if you're listening to a podcast whether it's drama or whether it's talking heads like like this 
And mm-hmm. I know my head's been talking a lot, but <laughs> <coughs> and you're doing, you're multitasking, you're on your exercise bike, you're driving. You can be distracted from the, the thing. You can, you can, you can zone out. Mm-hmm. And I, and I have found ways to keep the listener engaged in increments, be able yeah. to reset them without boring them by by re- reiterating things that we think they need to know about either character or story or plot so i i love the medium of of radio plays and audio drama yeah and it is interesting with the resurgence of it within the medium of the podcast mm-hmm. the very fact that this industry can't decide quite on calling what it is that we do what it is mm-hmm. audible is rolling out they've been using audio theater for a long time and and now specifically that is about recorded broadway and and stage shows yeah <clears throat> audiophile magazine has been trying to use the words audio theater differently the catch-all phrase podcast also now means audio tra- drama for for i think listeners who don't know that there was a vibrant entertainment industry in radio drama mm-hmm. <clears throat> in the united states anyway from the 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 1920 late 1920s up until the early 1970s and now today you have the major studios dipping their toe into audio drama warner discovery is is doing batman audio dramas oh that's right yeah and uh, i know they producing i know i know audible has re-released i know audible re-released all of the old superman radio dramas yeah from back in the day but they're even doing new things. There's a, a 40s noir detective thing with John Hamm that was released earlier this year mm-hmm. by Audible. Yeah. So they're, they're doing now original audio drama. And if they're giving them away for free, they're calling them podcasts. Yeah. So eventually, I think, it's such a wonderful medium. It really is. And so from both ends, from yeah. independents like us to the major studios, there is a renaissance. There is a sort of uh, new interest. And listeners, there's a big audience for audio books. And so people who like listening to drama, making these movie pictures in their heads, uh, <clears throat> this is a really good time, I think. Absolutely. And I <clears throat> I can't agree more about about the, amaz- the, the amazing possibilities that the audio drama provides, because just, just going through my own experience from taking a script, taking a book that, that took seven hours to read on audiobook and condensing it in as much as I can. The original goal was one hour and we oh, yeah, yeah. were able to thankfully expand it into two hours. So it didn't seem so truncated, but it was, it was an amazing experience being able to do that. And it's amazing what those kinds of limitations do because they force you to be more creative and so that way you can't just take the book and just throw it out there on on this whole different platform you have to adapt it absolutely and and it was it was a blast let me squeeze in this whole concept of adaptation because there's sort of a grayscale there is the audio book where often it's a single narrator reading a novel reading a work of nonfiction. And then you get into multicast audio books where mm-hmm. there are multiple voices reading. And then there is this weird hybrid. <coughs> Pardon me. There's a weird hybrid for a while 
where it was maybe 80% narration and a cast. Yeah. And then there is true audio drama where it is dramatized. It is a full cast with sound effects and music mm-hmm. and not just incidental music and a little sound. It is, it is what has been done for decades on American radio and German radio and the BBC and British radio. Mm-hmm. And that has been the real goal for the things that I've adapted, like Frankenstein mobster. Yep. It, 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 mobster was eight. Yeah. Eight issues. The graphic novel is, is uh, made up of eight issues. Our, the runtime, so it's eight chapters. Our runtime is about two and a half hours. There is a narrator. I've never been shy of using a narrator, either Mm -hmm. the characters narrating things or a a third person voice just to get us easily to the locations because they, uh, the, 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 what I'm striving for for the ear is very cinematic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so sometimes you can make a direct cut. And the very fact that your ambient sound, your, your location sound created in the studio or captured on location is, is clear. Mm-hmm. Time is jumped, but occasionally don't be afraid of the narrator. But let's just say that I've been really working so hard to learn and adapt the, the things we have adapted mm-hmm. to, to a radio drama to, to, to make it work that way and not just. 80% of me talking with occasionally another voice. We've done that with audiobooks. Mm-hmm. We're releasing all of the <clears throat> Baum Wizard of Oz books in the next several months. And I, I narrate them and play all of the characters, which was very difficult not to do imitations of Bert Lahr and, right. and <laughs> Frank Morgan. And, but mm-hmm. with each of those, we have a different woman playing. I have, I have a wonderful, young actor playing Dorothy in the first one. And, and I've chosen other actors to play Dorothy for each book or Ozma. It just made sense to have the main female in each of these books played by a woman. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of charming to do it that way. It's great. So there's a little bit of a hybrid, but I tried to keep the audio drama a little bit pure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it really was like a truly wonderful experience, actually like hearing these amazing actors bring this story to life in a way that, that had never been done before. And it's, it's thrilling, isn't it? And it's, oh, it's, and it's a little frightening at the same time. It, it yeah. was, it was terrifying because like not only was I the director of it all, but not only was it, uh, was I putting, these characters that have been in my head since for over 30 years into in into the trust of of these other actors and every single one of them would just crush it they were they were wonderful and but i was also the sound effects technician so Uh i was at the mercy of the clubhouse gods to basically just like make sure that 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 everything was moving, that wasn't, nothing was getting delayed. There were no lags or anything like that. And there was only like a minimum <laughs> amount of, of, of issues during the actual performance. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and thankfully, because I was able to download the audio, I just fixed all that in post. And so the version that's out there now, it's both, both days perform, both day performances of part one and part two. Edited together as one continuous experience, so it's the full Wonderful. two hours, two the full two hour show, and yeah. it was it was just 
absolutely remarkable. The fact that, that Deborah, Deborah Wooten, our producer, God bless her, gave me the green light already to start adapting the second one. That's got me even more excited because now it's just like the possibilities are really out there. And yeah, it's, it, it was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'm not, I'm not sure if you got to hear the whole thing. I know you heard some of it at least. I, I um, did, but I've not heard the the post production to yeah. version. I, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's available on 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 the new podcast that we have now. And um, but since we're since since we're running short on time now, I just I definitely would like to kind of give a nod to the fact that this month we're celebrating 85 years of the performance of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Yes done by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater Company. And it was, I, it, it really was just like a landmark moment in, in our American history. It really, really is to this day. And pardon me, the mythology that's, <clears throat> yeah, that's a good word. The, the, the myth of the show. Yeah. Has grown so much and doesn't, doesn't go away, even though some of it is a little, Little disproven mm-hmm. of Wells and the Mercury Theater panicking America. Yeah, there there was some of that, but but latching onto that and the very fact that it was presented as an actual, even though it was very clearly announced as being Mer- Mercury Theater, they they launched <clears throat> with their production of Dracula. Yeah, the summer before. Mm. So. There were other radio shows that had had a, a higher ratings, but the very fact that this, the gimmick of this script was that you were tuning into this innocuous music show, and these news reports would break through about activity on Mars, strange things happening in Grover's Mills, New Jersey, and then yeah. the full-out attack. The odd thing about it is, is that the second half of War of the Worlds is quite traditional radio drama. Mm-hmm. It really takes H.G. Wells' story. And, and, and follows through with that right down to what, what destroys the Martians and saves what's left of humanity. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting, <coughs> pardon me. It is, it is raining where I am and kind of thick and allergies kind of creep back in into this fall. The interesting thing about Wells is without going, I know we're so short of time. We should just do a show talking about Mercury Theater and Wells. I would love to do that, but that he, he, he is a very young man famously came back to the United States after in his early, in his teens, basically, Mm -hmm. and walked right into very happy accidents, Catherine Cornell to do American theater. Radio drama was really exploding. The BBC, believe it or not, this is interesting. They had already done, not War of the Worlds, but they had done a similar kind of fake news thing. Mm-hmm. They they had done that, which they caught hell for that. And so the, the, the script that was written in adapting that, because they were doing adaptations. Like I said, the very first thing was a production of Stoker's Dracula. So right. in approaching this to make it contemporary, they they went for this kind of fake news broadcast in the first half of it. Mm-hmm. Wells, prior to that, which made him a star on the radio and got him jobs to mm. play eventually the shadow briefly for a number of years before actors like Bill Johnson and others came into it. They did a, they did a radio play that was 
<clears throat> multicast, uh, multi-person with a chorus of a of an original piece called "The Fall of the City," and it was mm-hmm. written by Archibald MacLeish. The chorus was over two hundred people. Wow! And they recorded this in New York at the Armory. Mm-hmm. Wells was in it. Burgess Meredith. <laughs> Was it? Yes, I remember hearing <laughs> this. I remember hearing this on your show. Yeah, on, yeah. On on Redfield Arts Audio. Yes, I remember listening to it and really getting enraptured by it. And Burgess Meredith, my lord, the man was ama- <laughs> an amazing actor. He really was. Truly, truly, truly. And that you 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 unwind rewind Wells' radio career. Yeah. <clears throat> always thinking outside of the box, whether it's his first love, the theater. Yeah. And eventually, obviously, film, mm-hmm. beginning with with Citizen Kane. And I, I adore his last two films, F for Fake mm-hmm. and The Other Side of the Wind. But mm-hmm. my point is, is that that McLeish script, The Fall of the City, really awakened him to the possibility of what audio can do in storytelling. And yeah. so when I say I'm still learning from Mercury Theater, mm-hmm. I love overlapping dialogue. I love the boldness of these shows that I think still hold up to this day mm-hmm. and the quality of the voices because <clears throat> a number of those actors went on in the, in the tale, in the wake. Wells brought them with him, Agnes Moorhead, Joseph Cotton, Mm-hmm. So many <clears throat> actors ended up working in films, in television, and continued to have mm-hmm. really vibrant careers in radio drama. So War of the Worlds sort of, I think, is birthed in a lot of ways, uh, as hectic as Wells' schedule was, because a lot of that early radio stuff overlapped with the federal theater program and what he and John Hausman were doing in the theater. Mm-hmm. Their so-called Voodoo Macbeth, their Julius Caesar, mm. the eclectic plays that they were doing in New York uh, at yeah. the time, <clears throat> and to this day, I'll just I agree with you. I'll, I'll I'll shoot first by saying I can still listen to the War of the Worlds as many times as I've heard it, and I still enjoy it. Yeah, I, I know what's going to happen. I there's spoiling all day long, but it's still very <laughs> enjoyable to listen to. Absolutely. Yeah. And not only is it, uh, not only is that enjoyable to listen to, but the, the American experience documentary that is Uh, available on Amazon prime is wonderful as well. And (coughs) if I'm not mistaken, has there been, has there been a film adaptation of there? There was, there are a couple of films that a couple of them address the entire thing in the, the so-called panic of America. Yeah. The, the, the myth is, is that people <clears throat> during a commercial for Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and, mm-hmm. and, and figure that out in radio that. Right. I, I, popular, I can, I can never understand most, that. I was just like, really? That was on radio? <laughs> is a ventriloquist and his dummy on right. radio. Come on. But the, the mythology goes is that people turned over during commercial <clears throat> Mercury theater was getting lower ratings and had a smaller audience. And they were hearing these news reports, so they stayed glued to it. Yeah. So there is, I think it's called The Night That Panicked America. Mm-hmm. There's, there's another one. It's touched on in a couple of other films. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> shoot, I'm blanking on the name of the one that I really, my, my 
my life with the world. I don't know what it's called. It's a wonderful thing about a young man who gets a job working in radio with Wells and Hausman. And I'm blanking on the answer. Wasn't it me and Orson Wells or something? Like it's something like that. Orson Wells and me. Like Yes. And it's a wonderful little film. Yeah. So it's touched on in some other things. But yeah, they, those those things are out there to watch. Excellent. Excellent. And yeah, we're definitely having you back on, if not on this show, but on Audio Drama Sunday Theaters, so that we can oh, really get in, get into more details about this. Because just the the fact that that I just wanted to put together a show that would celebrate audio dramas and really put the spotlight on current ones that are out there, I believe that you would be an, a wonderful resource. Oh, them. I again, I love talking about the older shows and the history of it, and I just wanted to also mention, <coughs> pardon me, briefly that. All of our stuff is on Audible and other platforms. And as far as podcasting audio drama, again, late October 2023, probably when this is out or, or certainly beyond that, we're doing our second season of audio drama podcast. It's called The Midnight Matinee. Yeah. And it's a horror anthology thing. And this new batch of shows, they're all original scripts. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're very eclectic and uh, uh, just weird tales. So um, uh, uh, that'll that's on all wherever you get your podcasts, as the kids say. Wonderful, and 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 your sh- and we can we can find you on Instagram. We can find you on Facebook. You're on quite quite a bit of social media. You're and the. If I'm too not much. mistaken, too much. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, the 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 website is Redfield Arts Audio. RedfieldArtsAudio.com. And again, I invite people to our YouTube channel, which is at Mark Redfield Studios, that you can see some of our films, some of our spoken word and audio, some music. We have suites that we put up. Jennifer Rouse, our composer, mm-hmm. who makes the music for most everything we do. So it's eclectic, and you can watch Cold Harbor and you can watch The Death of Poe there. Wonderful. Wonderful. And just as we have heard throughout this, throughout this entire, this entire episode, Mark is the perfect example of someone who makes his opportunities happen in any possible way that they can be done. That is something that I really hope that all of you are able to take from, all of you are inspired by, all of you can move forward with your own projects and get them out there in whatever form works. And the great thing about audio dramas right now is this is the time to get your get your productions put together get them out there they cost a whole lot less than you think that they do and you can put together some truly wonderful experiences for your listeners ears and all it takes is is for you to push it through to make it happen, get the people behind you that believe in your projects, that want to work with you, that want this project to succeed. And when you have a group of of people that are collaborating on one big project, then there's no telling what the future what the future may bring. And it is just an, a wonderfully exciting time and I'm so thrilled for for everything that Mark is doing and I'm so thrilled for everything that these formats are are doing out there right now so by all means get those works out there make your opportunities and make your future happen now (laughs) so for mark redfield this is george soroy saying to all of you ever upward and i will see you next week and we're out 
Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com. 